Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Michael Fenton-Stevens, and this podcast is where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life they would like to put in a time capsule. They can pick anything that they treasure, but one of the five has to be something that is memorable, but that they are glad to see the back of. My guest in this episode is the actor Miles Jupp, who is a constant presence on our TV screens and radios as a presenter or guest on various comedy panel games, such as Have I Got News For You, Mock The Week, The News Quiz, which he presented, and Would I Lie To You. He's also been in The Thick Of It, Rev, Josh, Outnumbered, The Crown, The Durrells, and, like most actors, Midsummer Murders. And he's been in films. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix... Sherlock Holmes, Made in Dagenham, Johnny English Reborn, The Legend of Tarzan, and The Man Who Invented Christmas. On stage, he's appeared at the National Theatre and in the West End, most recently playing David Tomlinson in The Life I Lead. Like another of my guests, Justin Edwards, he was about to open in Comedy of Errors for the RSC at Stratford. In fact, he was going to play Justin's brother, when all theatre was cancelled. So I spoke to Miles and one of his children in his kitchen at his home, via Zoom, obviously. And we talked about five memorable things from his life. And here is that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, all right, Miles, welcome to my time capsule. So what's your first item? Well, my first item is is, this isn't mine so i'd have to steal it in order to put it into my time capsule but it would be uh catherine granger's gold medal uh from the 2012 olympics 
that was some of the earlier medals on Super Saturday, which was the 4th of August, which I remember. And it, I sort of, the whole story is backwards to me, really, because that, that was the day that our um, twin boys were born, about six weeks early. So we lived in um, Peckham in those days. And we also, we didn't have a television. So the only time I sort of saw any television then was in the antenatal unit, where there would be a TV up with almost no sound on, unless someone got up and turned it up, and then maybe someone else would get up and turn it down. And I wouldn't have the confidence to do either of those things. Uh, but I spent quite a lot of time in the antenatal unit there. And um, imagine if I got the date wrong and she didn't win on that day. But it definitely, this definitely happened to me in the antenatal unit. Was I... Obviously, you know, you have children, it's a very emotional experience. And a, a tw- twin birth is sort of di- different, you know, it's, it's, I'd say it's more than times two in terms of the in- intensity of it. And the thing is, I hadn't seen the race. What I saw, I was sitting in the antenatal unit and all I saw was her medal ceremony. And I didn't even really know who she was. And I saw that she was very emotional because I was very emotional. It made me very emotional. And then I sort of thought, I'll find out what that is. And so I sort of worked it out backwards so I didn't see the race until long after I'd seen this medal ceremony (laughs) and it's just a thing that completely reminds she makes me whenever I see her you know a picture of her somewhere or uh, in fact my wife got her autobiography out of the library for me um, the other day I it always (laughs) it always just makes me makes me think of that time and it's kind of extraordinary so the other day the children were asking about Super Saturday the day they were born and I said well let's have a watch and they always laugh at me when I cry, hmm. uh, which is probably a healthy response. So when Aunt Lucy arrives at the end of Paddington 2, they all turn and stare at me rather than looking at the picture. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, yeah, it's sort of glorious. So the whole story of Catherine... I then learned, and, then, and then after watching the medal ceremony, I then learned, oh, I see she'd won silver at three previous Olympics. Um, so that's, that's kind of what, why it's so important to me. And I was at a sport, I had a book out that was about cricket a few, it was around the same time, 2012. And for a while then I was, I was going to sort of Liffey festivals and sometimes there were sort of, you know, sporting ones. And I remember I was, at a, was one at Lords and I was grabbing my stuff to go and catch a train to, uh, to Norwich for a stag do. And uh, I ran back into the room to get my bag. And the only other person in the room was Catherine Granger. <laughs> uh, and it was just a small, you know, like a boardroom. And I just went, thank you for everything. <laughs> oh. I mean, I said, I mean, just well done. And then gra- grabbed my stuff and um, <laughs> ran out of the room. So that's the only, <laughs> the only time I've ever met her. I turned it up to 10 within, uh, within nanoseconds. <laughs> well, at least you didn't burst into tears. Yes, that's what that no, really no. would have been. Just more than just yeah. a man standing there sobbing at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Your rowing means so much to me. Um, but yeah, so that's a story almost in a kind of um, like the film Memento. Mm. Uh, I learned the story of Catherine Granger sort of backwards. So the, my, for me, the opening chapter was seeing her winning a medal and crying and having no idea why. And being <laughs> and so yeah, did you miss the rest of the, the Olympics, basically, then having no we television? Saying, buy that DVD and, and watch it. As I said, we didn't have a telly in those days. Um, which was, in retrospectively, madness and caused all sorts of other things. Um, but we we didn't, yeah, I, I've seen very little of it. I think I saw the opening ceremony when I play and stuff. But there's loads of it I haven't seen. But because I tell the children, oh, you, those two, that they were born on Super Saturday every now and then, we go back and Google it and watch Mo Farah and whatever. Yeah. I remember we'd been watching it for about six minutes, and then one of them went, and which one's Mo Farah? <laughs> <laughs> Did you go to see anything at the Olympics? At Not at all. It was for us. It was a sort of slightly crazy time. We'd 
we just moved house and Rachel was... Well, because you just had two Yeah, babies. and then you're there, you're going to the hospital and we already had two older ones. So I didn't... No, I, I've sort of seen lots of it, but in, in retrospect, really. It's like a sort of very cultural landmark that I wasn't really able to experience any of it at the time. So I've had to sort of go back and in the same way that you might be, you know, you might get into a team and start start reading about them in the 70s or the 60s or whatever. It, it is mm. part of my own life, but I had to go back and research it because I was absolutely... <laughs> Uh, I went to the Olympics. My, we went as a family, and uh, unfortunately, we didn't go on uh, on Super Saturday. We went on on Boring Friday, <laughs> but it was still a fantastic thing to go to. Yeah, the atmosphere was unbelievable. I've never felt anything like it. You know, being part of something like like that, whatever. Even now, here we are. We're in lockdown. Uh, meant to be homeschooling five children, which is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, get sent work to do, and that sort of thing. And then part of me thinks this is in the school books anyway. Yeah, I mean they're living they're living through history, so they could surely they could just ease off the gas a little academically, and the, the knowledge that you know I don't know when, when I was that thing where history catches up when something becomes history so quickly. I remember coming home from school and Dad asking what we were doing in history, and I said, "Oh yeah, we're doing Vietnam at the moment." And he was going, "What? <laughs> what are you going to when history?" I was going, "Yeah, well yeah, that's history." And he goes, "No, I mean it's only just the other." You know. For him, it was as if he'd only just sort of come back from Grosvenor Square in the march and whatever. He couldn't quite believe that this was already something that you could sit in the class and learn about. Um, yes. But yeah, their, their children will ask them what they did during the great virus, wouldn't they? I think so. That was when my, I remember my father jumping off the roof. Yeah, that was the, uh, yeah. that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. well, I remember his dad crawling, crawling, he was in the middle of the lawn and he just curled into the sort of the fetal position. <laughs> and he pounded the ground with his fists, just hot, hot tears streaming down his face, just repeating the words, one day you will understand this. Uh, it was, it was, That's it. And all he's done since then is whimper. <laughs> yes, day after day. <laughs> I, I See, I'm not convinced that children uh, necessarily need a terribly formal education. Yeah, but I think it, it, you, there's people worrying about, I mean, I went to that sort of school where it's a kind of sausage factory and you're like, you know, you're 14 and you're essentially the careers master. And and he's saying, well, you probably ought to be a barrister or whatever. Ludicrous. Someone that's held the same job for 30 years telling you what's out there. And <laughs> I really liked theatre and stuff like that, but I was told it got in the way of stuff. Um, you think, well, as long as they're passionate about things, mm. then it should be all right. But yeah, it'd be nice to think it, one would, could live in a sort of idyllic world where you open the back door and say, there you go, children, see you at supper time. And they'd come back at sort of 5.30, covered in mud and with some sticklebacks in a jar. But, uh, you know... <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there are people who have lived that life. For example, uh, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Dirk Bogart's autobiographies. Yeah. He lived exactly that life. I remember reading it when I was quite ludicrously young actually mm. he's got a very great desert island discs in particular has him talking about him being in in the trenches and how he his, his sort of homemaking skills it's a bit that always stuck with me about him carving a bookcase out of the soil effectively next to his desk and then wow yeah amazing yes Okay, well, we're going to put that fantastic gold medal. It was a terribly moving ceremony, wasn't it, Catherine Green? Just, yeah, yeah. The idea of waiting all that time and coming second. So you wouldn't have known that when you were watching. I didn't know it. any of that. Yeah, at all. I was so just, the raw, the raw emotion of it must have just come through the screen. Yeah, well, I must have looked up in the room. You know, you're in a sort of really hot room with strip lighting, and there's a sort of you know vending machine and people rushing about and whatever. And then suddenly, in the midst of it, you look over and there's somebody else crying, and you think. Oh, that's what I need to do. <laughs> all I was waiting for was a prompt. Uh, everything's um, 
actually, do you know, everything's always quite near the surface with me. But at a time like that, you think, yeah, that's that's that's, that's exactly what I needed. Mm. Yeah, I just think she's she's sort of glorious. Yeah. For me, it's sort of it's about a whole sort of time in our life that was completely crazy. I don't even look through it through rose tinted spectacles, really. I mean, you know, if you have twins, you go to your I think you go, you don't discover until about the, after three months. So you've just got your head around the fact that you're having another child, and then you go and have a scan. And they say, "Well, a bit of a surprise. It's two. And I, um, I mean, Rachel was absolutely delighted, but I, I was absolutely reeling, mm. and I just sat in the room repeating the phrase, the word Christ, <laughs> over and over again. Um, and about two weeks later, I actually got, I went, I went to the the doctor and got signed off. <laughs> Said, "You just what's in your? What have you got? Anything you can do in your diary that you don't need to do?" And I was. None of the stuff I do, I need to do. It's all ridiculous. And then the other thing is you think, no, I've got a like, nest at the moment. I need any... I was on a way to do a gig somewhere on the South Coast about two or three days after the do- after we've been told the twins and I, um, I just got off the train and sat on a platform and rang the, uh, my agent. I said, I just can't. Richard, I can't. I just can't do this. Oh, no. Where are you? I'm on a, I'm a, I'm on a bench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, somewhere just on the I just I've just got off the train. I don't I don't really I just can't do this. And he was like, I think he very quickly heard from the sound of my voice, don't worry, I'll do a ring round. Um so it's I don't in that for that reason I don't look at it as through sort of rose tinted spectacles, but I do just think of it as a sort of glorious, exciting time. Mm. I hope she's still got that medal that means so much to me. If not her, perhaps for her. I, I'm sure she has, but it's gonna to have to be a replica. I can't nick her medal. No, fair enough. No, no, no. rules are rules. But I might it, I might just put a video in. Yeah. And then you can watch it and watch her get her medal. I mean, are you actually putting these time captures together and burying them in your own garden? Future archaeologists will think you had the most unbelievably busy life. I, I tell you, my, my stomach muscle is like, you know, it's amazing. I've been digging, digging, digging. <laughs> okay, so that's your first item. Yeah. In the time capsule. What's your second item? Second item is, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how I can do this physically. Um, Leave that up to me. Okay. So I, I had a job a few years. It wasn't really, a, it was a sort of jolly being a, like having a restaurant uh, column for the Evening Standard magazine, for which I have no qualifications whatsoever. But I, I sort of went along with it until it no longer seemed possible. Um, <laughs> and I would go to these really amazing places uh, with friends and uh, and have a meal and then sort of write about it. And sometimes, you know, I didn't like it because I, I couldn't, what I didn't like was going somewhere and not enjoying it and then thinking, oh, I'm going to have to write down that I didn't like it and that goes in a thing. I don't think that's very, you know, that's all a bit the other side of the fence. Mm. I went to lots of ludicrously nice places I wouldn't even be able to find now probably. But yet the greatest sort of gastronomic experience I've ever had in my life, and I I do enjoy eating, um, hmm. and uh, in Pembrokeshire, a couple of years ago, we went, I think for a half term, we went and stayed in Pembrokeshire with friends who are practical, which I would really recommend. I don't know if you've got any practical friends, but we've <laughs> been camping with them once and they'd done things like they'd found an old sail in a skip and rigged up an enormous ceiling for us under these trees, effectively. So whatever the weather, we could sit around a, a campfire and stuff. Whereas I, I, my car broke down outside someone else's house when I was doing the school run recently. And I had to go, in, I said to the man, I went back in, I said, can you help me? There's something gone wrong with the car. That, so we spent 10 minutes surfing around with it. Another 10 minutes, his neighbour came out. In that time, couldn't even open the bonnets. <laughs> you couldn't open the bonnet? Couldn't even open the bonnets. <laughs> and there was a 10-year-old in the car who immediately, there was something wrong with it. He said, oh, it's the starter motor. And I was like, oh, could you shut up, actually? Because <laughs> just, this is a 
Broke, just would you mind? I'm sorry, but it's anyway. The car got towed away, and they rang up the next day and said it's the starter motor. It's just so vexing. Um, <laughs> yeah, not very practical. We'd gone away with these friends who are really practical, and uh, we went to Marlowe's Beach, which is you have to walk down quite a long track to get there. And the practical friends we were with, in his, he bought like a big sort of military-style rucksack with him, and it turned out he bought a cooking pot and some firewood and some cream and some cider and some herbs <laughs> and a knife. And all the kids went and collected mussels and then he cooked them. He made, he built a, a fire, collected stones, made a circle thing, then made a circle, put the firewood in and he cooked on the beach. God. And I just, even now I can sort of think about it because the beach is there, it's so beautiful. You've got these glorious skies and there's, there's no one around. And just sitting there with this meal that, of the ingredients, you know, the children have gone and collected it. It just seemed the most amazing thing. And it is the, mo- it is the best meal that I've, I've ever had. But it's sort of more than the meal. It's the sort of the context of it and the, and the, 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 the setting of it. Mm. It just makes me feel, thinking about it now, as <laughs> locked as I am in my, in my house, it just, there's a sort of decadence to it, I suppose. But it's such a yeah. comforting, beautiful thought. I think, and that and that that's the greatest meal I've had, and it's the, and it it was all just done around us, really. Yeah, amazing. It does sound gorgeous. I have eaten on a beach. There's a restaurant called Doyle's Restaurant in Sydney, and and basically you sit on the beach, and look across the harbour towards the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and they just bring you fish that they've grilled, and it's the most fantastic place. But um, memories like that that are almost I don't know if you'd have to be a poet or to describe them accurately really just that to be able to describe a particular you know the the memory i have of it may just be a minute in time or 30 seconds in time when i looked up and thought well this is nice or whatever but that to me it would be that what i put in the time capsule is that feeling it may be half a minute before i'd been really bored or i stubbed my toe on something that 10 (laughs) seconds later i was screaming at someone because they hit someone else with a swing ball bat or whatever but in that particular moment there was a sort of um, glorious satisfaction to it well, life is full of those uh, moments that are fleeting, though, aren't yeah. they? I think probably the reason I remember Doyle's restaurant in, in Sydney so well is that I went there once and we were sitting at a table and Graham Chapman came over wow. and said he'd seen us on the television and he thought we were very funny. And you can't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. one of the greatest moments of my life. Yes. Yeah, that is absolutely glorious, that sort of thing. Isn't it? And it's something like that that makes no, no sort of sense. No sense at all. I dinner. I spoke at a Wisdom cricket dinner a few years ago, and uh, a proportion of my speech um, that I'd written was about my admiration for the cricketer Michael Atherton, who's my greatest hero across all formats. And <laughs> and when I got there, I looked. At, I got there slightly late, and I looked at the seating plan, and he was sitting. I mean, he could not have been closer to the lectern. <laughs> and I thought this is either going to be excruciating or or go the other way. And getting up there and starting to do it and just seeing a hero of yours laughing, even if it was just politely, was just an amazing, completely amazing feeling. And you think of yourself as a sort of teenager or child watching these people on the television. Yeah. There's a sort of certain level, isn't it, about doing this job. You, when you're working with people, you are doing the same job. And whatever the past is, at that moment, you're doing the same job. You're, you know, you're maybe sharing dressing rooms or or whatever it might be, or journeys. I, I, I just did in January, I did a, and this was well-timed actually, um, did a tour of I'm sorry I haven't a clue, and just, you know, 
driving around with Jack D all the time, who's a friend of mine now and is a nice, you know, nice guy. Mm. Um, but as a, like a teenager at school, we would sort of gather in the common room and watch videos of him. And he's probably the reason I, one of the reasons that I do what I do. And then, and then you get to a point where like, you've pulled into a sort of um, a petrol station. You go, uh, I'm going to get some Rebels. Do you want anything? And you're like, imagine this being normal. Imagine this being normal. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Although actually, I think meeting sportsmen is a very different thing. Because when you're yeah, with other performers... That's what we do. We can kind of understand it. Yeah. Even if they're really good and you think, well, I'll never be that good. You think, I kind of know what they're doing. Whereas a sportsman might as well be a magician. To, to be yeah. one of the people that doesn't find it frightening that a hard piece of wood is coming at you at 90 miles an hour, mm. you know, that's, that's a, that to me, there's a kind of sorcery to it. Yeah. You know, and that, it, it's a complete reach. It's nothing, it's nothing like, you know, it, it's incomparable. I, I once escorted Linford Christie to his dressing room at a charity thing. Th- things have been getting uh, a bit out of hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, come on, come on, Linford. Time you went to your dressing room. We all had a fun evening. Yeah, and he just won the Olympics, so he was the you know he was was the Barcelona '92. That's right. Yeah. So you know he turned up in the foyer, and I went over and said, "Hello, Mr. Christie. You know, I'm here to take you to your dressing room." He said, "Oh, okay, great." And we started walking down the corridor. Now he walked down the corridor. I ran down the corridor. Yeah. It was like walking next to something that wasn't human. Yes, extraordinary. I'd go to cricket matches, say, when I was a teenager, whatever. And I'd sort of hang around to get autograph. I remember I think Devon Malcolm coming out of a, it was at the Oval or something. And as he came out, I just sort of thought I'd, oh, I'd give him, a, I'd give him a pat on the back. You know, he's moving at pace or whatever. And honestly, I couldn't believe all. You know, I could not believe what my. <laughs> it was just granite. I was thinking, oh my word, this is a sort of different level of being human. Mm. And then I did actually. Then I then I played in a, I think in an indoor charity game with him once, and I. I'm, I'm terrible at cricket, but I'd somehow taken a wicket. Presumably someone had absolutely smacked it and someone else caught it. And he came over and gave me a high five, went, there you are, first wicket at Lord's. And I thought, how, is this, how has this come God. to pass? You know, <laughs> really, it's very odd. There's been a lot of dreadful days as well, Michael, I must tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that down the beach sounds gorgeous. Sounds lovely and that means... But that moment, I don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was just telling Michael about, do you remember when we went to Pembrokeshire? And we cooked that meal on the beach. Yeah. How good was that? It was fine. It was really nice. Tasty. Tasty. There you go, you see. There you are. And it corroborated by one source now. You get two, that counts as journalism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic, Miles. That, that it's put that beautiful meal on the beach in Pembrokeshire uh, into the time capsule. And uh, move on to your third item. Third item. That's got to be a jolly one. Um, okay, I've got this. I've, it's upstairs in my study i have um it's a small leather box and on it it says david tomlinson boeing boeing the apollo theater and uh, the dates which i think are either 53 to 55 or 55 to 57 and this was so this belonged to the actor david tomlinson who obviously was mr banks in in, in mary poppins mm. and i last year i was in a one-man play about him that my friend james kettle had written which was, I really, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I really enjoy acting. And the thing I most enjoy, though, is being part of a team. And suddenly this, what I really wanted to do this, even though it's not how a one-man play works, but I did find it as a piece of work, a really satisfying thing to do. And I would sometimes come off stage thinking, that's an actual, maybe I've never had a satisfying evening's work before. Maybe I've never done that. You know, it felt sort of different. It had jokes in, but it had sort of proper stuff and serious stuff. And it was, yeah, kind of, glorious sometimes really but one of the great things about it was that when James was writing it 
um, we kept thinking, I wonder if we could get in touch somehow with any members of the family. And it was just this sort of vague idea that at some point, yeah, maybe we could get in touch with the family and see what they thought. And then someone got in contact with James, who knew one of Tomlinson's sons, Henry, who was a first AD. Maybe, maybe you work with him. I have, yeah. Well, he's a delightful man. And they got in contact with each other. They said, oh, come round. And James went round and had dinner with three. He's got, he's got four sons. And he went round and had dinner with three, three of them. And um, they just told him loads of stories. And the, one of the great things about it, doing this thing, was that then becoming friends with them, um, with the with the family really, and they're they're yeah. just completely delightful people. In fact, David's widow Audrey is an amazing. She came to one of the press nights, uh, and that's all I could think about was her being there. You know, there's a lot of extraordinary stuff in it, and we became sort of friends with them. Like, since I've gone to stay with them a couple of times in in Suffolk, and um, the last time I was there, I stayed with Jamie, and I said, "Oh yeah, Mum wanted you to have this," and I unwrapped it, and it was this this box. And what it was, was it was the box that he would have on his dressing room, on the, the table in his dressing room, that you might put your watch in or your cufflinks or whatever. Oh. Small amount of Dorito eating going on. I don't know if that's coming through your ear. It's all right. It's charming. Um, and so it was... Uh, it's all right. And he said, Mum wanted you to have this. And it was his... Yeah, in fact, to me, it was a, a, amazing. And I, I said, wow, and it had the dates on it and... Uh, I said, was this a gift then that he was given by the producers? Because in those days, if you went into a play, it wasn't like you do a three-month or a six-month. You signed for contract for the duration of the play. He, he would have been in Boeing, mm. Boeing for over two years wow. in the West yeah. End. And I said, oh, this, was this a gift from the, from the producers? That's amazing. And they said, no, it would have been a gift to himself. He'd have, he'd have <laughs> bought everyone one, and this was the one he bought for himself. In fact, also, we've got, I would start the show in a sort of dressing gown, and I think we think, oh, maybe this is ludicrous level of research. I wonder what sort of dressing gown he used to wear when he was around the house. And I got in touch with one of the sons. The next thing, a parcel turned up. And he said, oh, mum's found one of his dressing gowns. She sent it to you. Well, I think David Tomlinson looked after himself slightly better than I do. <laughs> Couldn't quite get the thing closed. And it wasn't that sort of show. Um, and But we, I would keep it on a hanger and I'd have it in the dressing room. Mm. It's sort of part of him. I, you know, that sounds sentimental probably. But I kind of found it the sort of comforting and inspiring to have this thing here. And at the end of it, I said, um, oh, where do I send the dressing gown to? And they said, no, it's yours. It's a gift. Wow. And so I took it home and I had it on a wooden coat hanger and I hung it up in the study as a kind of piece of memorabilia, I suppose. You know, it's extraordinary that I should find myself in possession of, you know, it's very, have you played someone real? Um, I have actually. I've played uh, Alan Wicker. Oh, wow. Because often when you get given things, you're like, oh, you know, how, what bits of this are a bit like me and what about myself do I need to change or whatever mm. but when it's a real thing I find there's more of a kind of leaping in to do and you do spend time almost sort of meditating on sort of someone else's this must sound very grand it's like one of those little five minute videos of National Prayer. but you, you find yourself sort of meditating on what someone else is, is kind of like and then to have like sort of what feels like a piece of them mm. in a way if you're listening at home that's not me eating crisps that's my son. <laughs> I love David Tomlinson as a performer. As a, his performance in Mary Poppins is really beautiful. The moment when he repeats the joke mm. to uh, Dick Van Dyke as the old man. Yeah. It's just, it's really gorgeous. Because it's, Poppins is kind of about, he, in a way, he's the person that's changed most in the film. So he's the one that goes on a journey. That's why she's there. She's there it's to him, yeah. get him to be a proper father. A man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche on the edifice of time. And that's he has. <laughs> and that is the scene as well in which he gets a terrible press, doesn't he, Dick Van Dyke, for, for, for his accent work. But that scene, 
where he Dick Van Dyke is saying, "Well, you've just got to spend time with your family. That's that's the sort of that's what it's all about, you know. How dare they want some of your time? Yeah, what you do is so important." And he's mm. kind of sort of gently passive aggressive with him. That's kind of what it's about, I think. Yeah. But I, so I had this this dressing gown. I took it home and I put it in the study, and I thought, "There we are, this piece of memorabilia." And I went off to work in London, and I came back the next week, and. Um, <laughs> My wife was wearing this dressing gown. She went, this is great. Where did you get this from? <laughs> she, was, <laughs> she was wearing, she was cooking. And I would go, oh my God, that's the best thing. But, uh, you know, it's terrific in it. So I, it's not a museum piece. Um, uh, but that box, I thought, from a sort of burial point of view, it, it says what it is more mm. than a polka dot dressing gown. Yeah. But yeah, meeting them, meeting that family was just really one of the great things about doing that. You know, they're completely charming. I had an amazing... I think before Christmas, James and I thought we ought to get in contact with the Tomlinsons and see them again. Because we stopped doing the play, you know, you stop when you're doing something, you have reasons to see people. You know, it's one of the things I sort of miss about the news quiz. I kind of thought, well, I don't want to do it anymore because I want to stop sort of doing the show. But then I realised, oh, I like that bit when there's certain people that I definitely see every two or three weeks. Mm. You know, like when sports people retire, they go, oh, I, you know, I miss the dressing room. There's that, that kind of thing. And... Um, I thought, oh, well, I won't see them. Very. So we arranged to meet them somewhere for dinner and we had this unbelievably glorious evening. Uh, so I would, I would put that in partly to remember doing that play, which I, did. I really, I really love doing it. So it's partly about that, but it's also partly about, you know, the time I've spent thinking about David Tomlinson, but time actually spent with his family who are, who are yeah, really glorious people. Oh, right. Okay, well, let's put David Tomlinson's box into the time capsule. Okay, so what's um, your fourth item we, we're going to look at now? Right, we're going to interrupt this conversation for some adverts. We'll be back in a moment. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the fourth thing is that Miles Jupp would like to put in his time capsule. My fourth item, and I, I think I think I know where it is. I think I think it's in the bottom drawer of my filing cabinet that has stuff I want to keep in but that I haven't filed. So there's random things there. There's some I've got in there a postcard from Alan Bennett, 
I've got um, a letter from Stephen Frears that represents an enormous personal and professional disappointment. Uh, and uh, I've got, um, uh, I, I've got, but more important than that, I've got a ticket to the Oval on the, the Oval Cricket Ground uh, from the 12th of September 2005, which is the day that England reclaimed the Ashes, which we'd not won, I think, for 17 years. Um, if you don't enjoy cricket, just imagine I'm talking about any other sport or... Um, or something that you love. You must know what it feels like to love something. <laughs> uh, come with me. Um, so, yeah, I, that was a series that was a completely amazing... Are you a cricket person? Do, do you like I, I, I'm sort of a cricket person. I mean, I absolutely followed that, of course. It was know. just an amazing thing for me. and I, it, was a, it was a series that stretched out of, sort of July and August, and I was doing the Edinburgh Festival in August, and doing two shows a day, and I the best bits were when I was watching that on cricket on the telly, and then I'd have to go and do a couple of shows. And Edinburgh is a very sort of all-kind-of-encompassing thing when you're, when you're doing a show there. It's how mad to think that the outside world exists, and yet there was this br- brilliant thing going on. And then as it happened, I was in London... But basically, I was in. Um, I used to be in this children's show, Balamori, and we did these arena tours. And so we were rehearsing those when the game started. And there were sort of two days left, and everyone went home. And I thought, I wonder if I can try and get to the cricket somehow. And of course, it had been sold out months before. And I, but I actually managed to get the last two days. The first day, I was just sort of lucky there was a returns queue, and I joined it, and I got a ticket. Mm. And the second day, which was the final day, I was in a queue for returns that was incredibly long. And I had my my pockets were full of money, and um, I was just talking to a bloke who had a sign around his neck that said "Wanted one ticket for genuine fan." And uh, anyway, I was chatting away to him, and some people suddenly appeared and said, uh, "We've got two tickets which we're selling at face value. Uh, we'd love to sell you one because we like your sign." And he said, "Can my friend have the other one?" And they said, "Yeah, okay." And they bought them in January that year, and they were selling them on at face value, and they were ten pounds each. Unbelievable. Good God. I can remember their names. They were called Darren and Ashley from Guernsey, the people who had sold us the tickets. And uh, so we went in and it was just this most, it was an amazing, I was at the World Cup final, which was extraordinary, but this this was sort of even better. And it was, it was in a way, it was the end of the film for me. Uh, you know, I got into cricket when I was a teenager and we were just dreadful. All my heroes that were my heroes because they were the ones that shone brightly in the midst of this morass of just total <laughs> muddy awfulness. <laughs> and suddenly we climbed to the top of the, or, or slowly, gradually climbed to the top of the tree. And just to be there, it really felt like being part of something. If I go and watch a cricket match now, I'm, you know, I can't really, I'm never quite sure who anyone is anymore and stuff like that. And what's a good score mm. in 50 overs? I don't know. Uh, uh, but this, it was just absolutely my thing. And it, it, it felt so incredible to be there. And it was also just so just total luck, you know, various stars being aligned. And I've just started showing the, the box set of the greatest series to um, three of my sons. This is lockdown is long enough for them to get them interested in cricket. <laughs> I, it's partly, to, but also about just the generosity of those people that, that did something that for me was completely life-changing. So I still have this ticket to that amazing, amazing day. But the, my memories of it are so vivid. I remember being in the queue and um, Chris Addison walking past mm. and calling him over and having like quite a long chat with him about stuff and saying he was saying, have you got a ticket? And I'm saying, I'm trying to get a return. And him looking at me as if to think, well, good luck. And he... And then actually when I got into the ground, I looked forward and he was about 10 rows in front of me sitting with uh, Andy Zaltzman and John Oliver. And then I, irritatingly, 
afterwards, I had to go to Birmingham because we were, I think the tech rehearsals were the next day. I remember like having a message from Andy Johnson on the phone going, what a day, what a day. We're all in such and such a pub. Come and have a drink. But there was no way I could go. Oh. I thought it would have been a glorious. But it was just such an amazing day. Mm. The other thing about that is it seems so long ago now. I mean, it's only 15 years. Well, that's nothing, is it? But it's just, it really is seem a lifetime ago. And, you know, that's before I got married, before I had children. You know, life was just totally different. And it's a kind of, I can't believe that I've got this still sort of mint-looking thing which is just a piece of paper but to me represents this kind of glorious glorious time but it represents a sort of journey that's not just all the glory at the end it's it's what you've sort of gone through to get there and it for me that ticket isn't about just that day and just the generosity of those people and things I remember it's about a game that I started really loving back in 1991 and I followed avowedly despite the fact that we were dreadful at it and showed no signs of improving and then suddenly there we were winning this this thing back this, that we'd not won all the time that I'd been a fan of this this sport. So that ticket has all of that in it. It doesn't just have the moment that, that we won and the confetti cannons go off and they hold up that tiny trophy and people sing Jerusalem and all the sort of jingoistic nonsense. It also represents you know me lying awake at night at four o'clock in the morning listening to us losing in India and realising that I'm going to have I'm going to be exhausted all day the next day. And what I've done is had no sleep to listen to us fail. It's got all of those moments in. Because I used to have those fears that are almost like a nightmare as a child. We were so bad. What if there's a day when everyone fails? And then that day happened. We were bowled all out for 46 in Port of Spain. And it was sort of my worst fear. Those are the moments that that ticket mean. You think just the sort of agony of a child thinking, how can we you know, finish a day's cricket on... 40 for eight or whatever, or losing against New Zealand in 99 when we became officially the worst ranked test team. And our own captain was booed on the balcony during the match presentation. You know, those are the moments that you sort of carry with it in much the same way that I think when you do what we do or presumably anything, you can sort of look back and laugh on things that have gone spectacularly wrong or shows that you've been in that have just not being good or gigs that you've done that are absolutely tanked where either your fault or not your fault, all these things, you can look back and laugh about them and they become funny stories, but actually their worth is in the fact that they are part of maybe where you are now and other things you've got to and those kind of glorious moments you might have had. I don't know, having a standing ovation in a West End theatre or whatever, you can think 10 years ago, I had three walkouts in an audience of seven, you know, and I can sort of laugh about that, but it, it is also part of the joy of the other reaction. Yes. I'm not saying that I'm not all about the, the ovations <laughs> and whatever. That's not what I'd heard. <laughs> I actually genuinely find the curtain call is a bit of a play. I always think it's all very well walking on stage pretending to be other people for an hour and a half, but this, this is the really sickening bit. This is the bit when, in addition to them enjoying it first time around, we want them to keep telling us how much <laughs> yes, they, they They laughed all the way through, which would have demonstrated how much they were enjoying it. Now we expect them to clap. You cannot have been in this play and have no idea how this evening has gone. No. Good or bad. <laughs> and it seems churlish to demand that either they pretend they've enjoyed it more than they have afterwards, but we know exactly how much they've enjoyed it because we're deeply sensitive. <laughs> There's part of that. I, I always thought the curtain calls the sort of really... It's really sickening. Um, <laughs> and so those plays where people come on and fucking sing... Sorry, no. <laughs> those people come on and sing at the end. You think, no, no, the bit I liked was the bits that you rehearsed really well, not the last thing you did at the end of the tech rehearsal. The actual meaningful response is the one during a thing, or then maybe days later you think, 
Oh, of course, because in that scene, she left the letter in the bottom drawer. And then when he came in, he would have known it was there. And, th- and those are the sort of the worthwhile moments. Not sort of like you turn the TV off and go, right, well, I'm going to have to send something abusive to James Nesbitt or whatever it is. Bad, <laughs> that sort of behaviour. Yeah, at the same time, there are actors who feign that embarrassment and that I always find Worse than anything is well, what oh, oh, one of them. I, maybe oh, you are. Me? Thank you. Oh, gosh. Oh, really? I had no. no idea. I know I was Hamlet, but basically, this is an ensemble piece. <laughs> um, why don't I just stand on the left, Clive, on the far, basically in the wings? I think people have been looking at me all night. <laughs> That's what I basically call an RSC bow. Right. Well, you've got children left, right, and center. Hey, hiya, you're right. Are you watching Iron Man still or not? Um, we have to go around the churchyard, then back, and then we're going to watch Iron Man. Oh, right, okay. Bit of exercise, you're going to post some letters. What have you written? Who are they to? Oh, it's to my mother's birthday tomorrow. Ah. And so they bought the, the judge. The judge, yeah. Judge she, Judge Jupp. If they find it funny, when they go and stay with them, then it's her study. Did you go through the bedroom to her study, or is it the other Yeah, um, you and it, when there was you and it's room. Oh, yeah. Um, if you go through there, this is study, and the door doesn't say, um, it doesn't say Elizabeth Job, it says George Job. (laughs) (laughs) So then, George Job, (laughs) George Job, (laughs) George Job, yeah, it's good. You can have a bit of exercise around the church, aren't you? Is that the plan? Yep, and then we'll watch Tony Stark at his best. All right, that's four things you've put in. Yeah. So now we come to the moment where you have to put in something that you you really want to get rid of. Yeah, and mm. th- this is sort of more difficult. I think partly because the sorts of things that you want to get rid of, unless quite often a very bad experience involves other people, and you don't necessarily want to bury them, um, but. <laughs> In a way, of all the things that I'm ashamed of, I, in a, they're all sorts of quite sort of character forming in a way, and they're all sorts of part of, you know, I remember watching that um, Stephen Fry documentary about manic depressives and this thing about giving people the, if there was a button and you weren't like this, would you press it? And almost none of them would press it. They were all like, it's an essential part of who I am. Mm. And I kind of think that things that... And there are many that every now and then I think of and go, oh, no. Oh, God. Well, you know, I, in a way, I'm sort of glad they're there. It's a sort of kind of, it's a system of checks and balances, isn't it? And I think if yes. you put these things away in a, in a, in a time capsule, it's almost like, you know, they're, they're sort of dealt with them and there'd be some sort of imaginary catharsis. But in terms of things that for which one could just blame oneself, I, I was doing an interview with a big issue recently when you do a thing about, I think it's like a letter to your 16-year-old self and, things you need to think about. And and my instinctive reaction was to tell my 16-year-old self, rather than this kind of, hey, do you know what? Things you're worried about now, it turns out they don't matter or whatever. I actually found myself, I had to edit myself because I wanted to say to my 16 myself, you're an asshole. <laughs> All right? You just are. And you when you're my age, you'll realise that. And, you know, deal with that how you want to. <laughs> that kind of seemed to be how I felt about things. I think as you get older, there's a kind of thing I don't know if you, you do this, but I, I sometimes feel like almost at every five years, I, I despise the person I was five years ago or something like that. Even if I probably haven't changed, I sort of <laughs> wrongly imagine that I have in, in, in some way. 
But I, I think I've spent a lot of time in my life trying to be amusing, which is not necessarily a good thing and not necessarily a, a bad thing. And it's been a, a living for me and whatever. But it, mean, it becoming a living for me means I have a completely different relationship with that sort of thing. And obviously, if you're with your friends and you're just sort of chatting or whatever, that's a kind of natural thing. There's, there's something organic about it. But other times when I'm doing it, it's, I, I feel like I am at work. And I don't think that's unhealthy to think, right, I've got to sort of go into this mode now and try and be amusing or dry or whatever. But I, I think I became quite obsessed with comedy more than acting when I was a teenager and had, and I, you know, may have been funny sometimes and may have not have been others. But the thing that I regret actually is having for quite a long period of my life probably valued laughter kind of too highly and so you know I look back and those times in life when the thing that you've you've placed most value on is getting a laugh at the expense of all the other things for instance uh people's feelings or you know any kind of wider consequences um you know when you're a teenager school's not always the most pleasant environments and you have this you know, and you will you will say things just to get a laugh without thinking about what that might, you know, the imprint that that might leave on someone. So in a way, into the time capsule, I would like to, that kind of period where, when I didn't think about the consequences of those, of those sorts of things and just thought the laugh was the thing that mattered. Because also it doesn't set you up well for life in terms of if humour is part of your natural defence mechanism, then that means that you use humour at times when you are genuinely uh, stressed, say, or genuinely working hard. And then people that don't have it as part of their armoury and aren't interested in it, you, you know, you might be someone that's working hard at something and you make a joke in that environment as part of your way of dealing with it. And they would think that you're not working hard and that you're not applying yourself. Yes. You know, I remember being in a work thing that for me went really, really wrong and made me really miserable. And... You know, when I look back, uh, I made jokes at times when I, when for me, I felt that I needed to do them because it was probably an, a defensive act. But for the people who are making them too, that is interpreted as you not caring or you're not working hard enough or that you're uh, a troublemaker. And then you're making a rod for your own back because then they then think that you're someone that needs to be handled and that needs to be managed. Mm. And then actually all you've done there is just ramp up the pressure on yourself, effectively. Mm -hmm. If you make jokes, then people sometimes really think that's kind of, that that's the only thing in there rather than that's the thing in the top of the surface and that they don't, they don't see it as a buffer. Mm. They think of it as like a sort of an active sort of troublemaking instinct, which is almost as, as if, as if that's the only way you can go yeah. is that you can't think seriously about something, even though you can do both at the same time. You're buying time, aren't you? Quite often when you do something. Quite often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've asked me a really difficult question and I'll say this because it's there and then, and, but you, you and I both know it's not the real answer to the question you're asking and then I've got time to think about it. It's a perfectly valid technique, but it's so easy to misinterpret it that it's, it's mm. the really you know, costly and damaging. Yes. I'm of the same nature, I think, but I would automatically, in any situation which is slightly tense, try to get a laugh to break it. Yeah. You know? I remember I had this thing at a corporate gig last year, or a couple of years ago, I made a joke about something and a lady came up and just sort of had a real go at me about it, saying that it was, um, that she'd been offended by it, which is kind of valid. Because I think if you're a comic, 
all that's in your gift is what your intention is, but how things are perceived, that's not up to you. Mm. And you can't say to someone, no, it isn't offensive because this is what I meant. It's offensive if they're offended. Now, obviously, there are some people, you know, people have different bars for this sorts of things and different levels of sensitivity and whatever, and some people describe things as being offensive. You think, well, that's just, what are you talking about? But I, you can't deny if someone is, is genuinely offended by things, and I think sometimes people say they are when they aren't and, and, and vice versa. Anyway, so she said, you know, this is really offensive, and I thought I'd better come over to you because you people like you think it's okay to offend everyone and you just don't mind. And I thought, you can't say that to someone as... I do mind. I absolutely mind. You know, I'm you know quite an anxious person, and I don't know why you'd assume if I knew that you were going to come over and rant at me and have a sort of manic episode, I just simply wouldn't have said it because I, I do mind. Mm. You know, and I, I that sort of thing of being accused of being flippant about something or not caring when you do care is a thing that's kind of always really bothered me, I suppose. And that's so that's why that kind of seeking refuge in the laughter is a kind of just in terms of balancing that out i think it's so important and i kind of i kind of wish i hadn't gone down that route in a way mm. because obviously it has been useful in lots of ways roof over my head and so forth but in other way, other ways you kind of think it's sort of it's messed up the settings do you think some people actually with their experience of humor they stop seeing the funny thing because in fact they've trained themselves to not see it yeah and and i think that maybe that's because they have the experience of offending someone or being frightened of offending people and so they they just yeah well that, and then that in itself is quite a dangerous situation to get into and you think well it's probably easier not to say anything mm. or also that, that that kind of thing i think some people inst- if you're not the sort of person that instinctively makes jokes then if someone says something, you're not sort of programmed to think, oh, one of the reasons that they've said this is, is as a joke. Mm. And, you know, you sort of, that's already discounted. And then obviously that ends up being, you know, it's like if you're in a comedy directed by someone who has no innate sense of humour. We've all been there. It's a tiring process. <laughs> I've had a number of directors who often when they're giving notes is the moment because then they're being very serious. But it's a long, boring process sometimes that. Yeah. And, you, and half of them you know already. And you sort of go, no, I know when I did it, I, I worked that out. The brain starts working on sort of three levels. I remember being in this thing and, you know, when you know that stage of play when you're doing previews, you know, that's, the, that's a very intense period where you're rehearsing something and doing it in the evening. And I remember like getting into this kind of awful, making some sort of mistake with a prop during the play in the evening and being annoyed at myself for having made the mistake. And then my first thought afterwards wasn't carry on with the play. It's, oh God, and at 12.30 tomorrow, someone's going to get out their file and remind me that I made this mistake. And I already <laughs> yes. know. And you're like, this is so, this is sort of agonising. I think I have actually, uh, when the director's there in those moments, when I've done something that I've gone, no, that was the wrong choice. I think I have turned to a director on stage and gone, yes, I know. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, and also in the real world, all of this sort of stuff is so deeply unimportant, isn't it? Mm. You know, because the nitty gritty of it, the little details, I, I sort of love, really. But I can appreciate that it's about as interesting to some people as cricket is. You know, <laughs> I love that thing where a few like-minded people are discussing what is the funniest word ordering in a sentence or something like that. Mm. Have you ever seen that footage of them rehearsing Blackadder? And just the details they're getting into over a line or whatever. Yes. If you talk to any of them about it, they're kind of... Yeah, it was sort of nightmarish, really. And obviously obviously all worthwhile. That sort of detail is worth going through and fighting for, I think. I think so. As long as, long as you're sort of largely on the same page, yes. whatever, then, it, yeah. then it's kind of all right, you know. But I do agree with you that actually comedy at any cost, disregarding the consequences, is is selfish. I think you're right to to see that in yourself and, and try and 
rejected. Yeah, well, I hope, yeah. I mean, hopefully I've um, done that. But I sort of think back, I think like when you're sort of 18, 19, 20 or whatever, or even older, you know, you just say things entirely. You know, I used to love arguing when I was at that age. To me, that just, that seemed really fun. Mm argue about stuff and even just to sort of playing devil's advocate or or whatever also i think when anyone else says i'm just playing devil's advocate here what they actually mean is this is what i think please don't shout at me <laughs> i used to love that and now perhaps because i live in a fuller house i, I cannot bear arguing mm. and i will acquiesce very quickly because i think well i would rather i don't know not enjoy what side of the sink we put the washing up on than argue about it you know, we don't necessarily have those sorts of arguments. I'm just quite near the dishwasher rack. But you think, I just don't, I don't want to be involved in, I just don't like it anymore. That's time that you could spend just silently staring out of the window, <laughs> lying on the sofa, looking up at the ceiling, which is, you know, sighing. Uh, and that's time well spent. But that that kind of just desire to just, you know, I even used to think about it, like I used to think of myself as Christian, right? And it was partly because, I sort of got slightly irked by that kind of vogue there was for sort of rationalism to be this kind of cool thing. And, you know, people would sort of lazily use the phrase sort of organised religion. Oh, I've just got a bit of a problem with, you know, organised religion and that sort of thing, which is a kind of, it's all organised. You're not really, you're not saying anything there. And then, so I would would sort of almost take it on as a kind of intellectual position, uh, ludicrous as that sounds. And then I was having a conversation with an actual, Christian <laughs> and he was saying well the thing is about Christianity I mean that you know some people think they're a Christian if they go to church and they sing hymns and uh, they go through the liturgy and and that sort of thing uh, and then there's other people who genuinely believe that their heart has been touched by uh, Jesus Christ and that he's made a difference to their lives and those people have real belief and I thought, oh, right, I'm just a cultural Christian. I'm not a real one. <laughs> but it was, again, that was the sort of subject in which I was sort of happy to get into long arguments, despite having no deep-felt beliefs, as it turns out. And all that's just sort of gone. Mm. I've, I've had arguments almost to the point of uh, fisticuffs and mm. then realised that actually I was doing exactly that thing of playing devil's advocate. So I got vehement about something that I didn't believe in. Yeah. And that's bizarre. I think there's that thing. You get asked to talk about things. And it's very easy to say yes to that. There's people that are viewed culturally as really opinionated who probably weren't or probably aren't. And yet people kept asking them what they thought about things. So they kept thinking up opinions or sometimes they'd have opinions and sometimes they wouldn't. And I kind of think it's quite a useful rule of thumb. Just I reasonably often have sort of things on my answer phone from somebody at Radio 4 and various different, you know, quite often sort of newsy programs saying, we're doing a thing about so-and-so, could you come on and talk about whatever it might be? And I, I kind of think 15 years ago, you'd be like, oh, I'd go on whatever to talk about anything. <laughs> well, listen to these messages and think, one, why haven't you started the message with saying where you got my number? Uh, so I've already gone off you. But secondly, I don't know, I'm not really, I'm just not, I don't, I don't think anything about that. You could just sort of play along for a bit. And we'd love you to come along and tell us what you think about the four-field crop rotational system. <laughs> and go, yeah, fine. And then come on. And they go, what do you think about it? And you go, I don't think anything about it. <laughs> I'm neither for nor against. I suppose like people say about Gove and Johnson, it's this 
it's a problem with politicians that are trained as journalists. They're so used to only thinking something really passionately for the length of time it's taken them to yeah. actually write an article. Well, if those people are in charge of determining, you know, an ideology, that becomes really dangerous. <laughs> yes. I think in a way, I, that is what I would, if I could remove that part of my makeup that used to sort of value laughter above anything else, I, I'd sort of like it to be, all that space to be taken up with just the awareness that there's lots of things you don't think or know about. And, and it's best for everyone if you just say it right at the top. Yeah. The number of conversations you've had, you've had about books or whatever, because someone said, have you read something? And you go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then like 10 minutes into this conversation, you think, why did I, why have I said I've read this? <laughs> well, I've been talking about it for 20 minutes now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> just to say, no, I, no, I haven't seen it. I haven't read it. I don't know him. Yeah. I know he's a friend of yours. I don't like him. Why don't we not talk about him? You know, any of those things, you, you, you just, there's a sort of an inbuilt dishonesty, isn't there? Which is in a, a way an attempt not to be rude or to embarrass people. But actually, I think there's an awful lot of time we spend talking about things about which we know absolutely nothing. And then, you know, you might bump into something a week later. Oh, yeah, I saw Neil the other day. He was saying that um, you were both chatting away about um, such and such a film. Well, I think, you know, oh, well, it's happened again. I've, I've dug this hole for myself. Now I know two <laughs> conflicting theories about a thing about that I haven't seen. <laughs> Oh, dear. All right, Miles, we're going to put all those things in the time capsule. And uh, thank you so much for talking to me and taking the time away from your family, which uh, may be a burden, may be a blessing. It's lovely to have the family involved in it. It's uh, great to meet them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, as long as there's no legal implications and any of the accusations they've made on it. <laughs> really, really nice to speak to you, Michael. It's lovely to see you. Lots of love, man. And you. Be good. You have been listening to, in fact, you've listened to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, but mostly my guest, Miles Jupp. In fact, I slightly suspect you're no longer listening to etc, etc. But for those rare few who are still listening for whatever reason, here's some info about us. You can subscribe to this podcast to stream all episodes for free on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. Thanks. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook for all the latest about My Time Capsule. Just search at MyTCPod. Or you can follow me at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Past the Peas Music. Thanks for listening. I know you're not really listening, but thanks anyway. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.